This is the Deal Closers Podcast. I'm your host, Randall Sylvie. We hear a lot from our broker experts, Jason and Ron, on this show. Each week, they come in and drop us nuggets of wisdom about the ins and outs of the industry. But in this business, there are a lot of companies to sell, a lot of different seller-buyer situations, and a lot of obstacles that can come up. And with so much going on, there is a plethora of professional brokers out there. So for this episode, we're mixing it up a bit. We're bringing in a different voice, another broker from WebsiteClosers.com, Tom Howard. My background is over the last 20 years or so has been entrepreneurial, usually starting, building and launching uh, new business, small businesses that I've built up and sold, mostly around financial services and technology. The first couple of small businesses that I built, I sold myself and it was a, a somewhat painful process on the last business that I built and sold. It was a more complex business. It was a title insurance company, financial services. And I decided on that business to hire a broker who interestingly enough now works for us at website closers. And through the experience of working with the broker and and successfully selling the business, I realized I really liked putting the deals together and thought I'd make a run at it and give it a try and go into M&A full time. And the rest is history. I've been doing it ever since. Now, I know you guys do a lot of work with tech and online businesses. What do you find unique about the tech side of the industry? I think one of the unique things is the pace of deals. So in tech and in the online world in general, things just move really quick. When we're working with sellers, sellers are used to, when they sell a product, they get paid instantaneously. When they launch a marketing campaign, they get like immediate feedback. And, you know, you have to kind of step up to that pace. And I did some brick and mortar work prior to moving into the tech and online space. And it was a much slower pace, a lot of face-to-face meetings. We don't really have a lot of that opportunity to meet face-to-face. So I just find that sellers are looking for immediate feedback. Things move really quick. They may list after one meeting. They're looking to be live in a few days and they're ready to, to meet with buyers like right out of the gate. And I think that from my perspective, that really differentiates and it's something that any broker that's going to be successful in this space has got to accommodate. Yeah, I agree with that. It's funny. Ron also had a background originally. You know, I don't want to speak for you, Ron, but you know, you originated in brick and mortar too. And I never did any of the brick and mortar stuff. I was always tech, but you know, I still dealt with a lot of those brokers as I was acquiring companies myself. And it was amazing, you know, how slow a lot of them are, you know, how unknowing they are as it relates to a particular company that they're representing. Most of them have very little sense of financials, et cetera. And so I agree that we differentiate ourselves due to speed and and how quickly we sort of operate. And some of that lends itself towards the fact that there's just so much demand right now for this sector. You know, we've got over 800,000 people following us right now in all different sorts of capacities. And With that kind of demand, it kind of forces you to work fast anyway. But this is a whole different world from brick and mortar. As everyone sees, everyone's moving away from brick and mortar anyway. Everything just moves faster and you have to be able to move fast with it. And that's one of the things we really pride ourselves on is when someone comes in, they want to sell their company. You know, a lot of times they're early 20s, mid 20s. And, you know, these are A type people that want to move quickly. And, you know, we want to too. You know, we, we want to get it under wraps. We want to figure out the business quickly. You know, we've represented about 1,800 of these to date. And with that number of representations comes a great deal of experience and know how. And so that means that these kind of move fluidly. They move quickly and fluidly. And that's what our clients want. And Tom does a great job with that too. So glad to hear that question come up here. 
Yeah, and I think we're, as a brokerage, kind of sitting on an island because, as Jason mentioned, the the status of brokers out there is really lacking. I mean, the knowledge level is so low that it's almost astounding. And then you combine the fact that, you know, that's bricks and mortar. It's pretty defined. It's pretty easy to understand. You come into the tech sector, it's a totally different scenario. There's 100 moving parts. Most brokers have no clue as to what we actually do. We often receive referrals from bricks and mortar uh, brokers on their companies that they receive in our sector because they just don't get it. And I think that's where we kind of are very unique. I'd love to share a story that kind of drives that home. And, and it actually relates back to how I started work at website closers and got into this industry in general. So I was working in brick and mortar for a short time and I took on a listing that was actually an online business listing. It was a freight forwarder. And the two sellers, I was really taken with the way they had designed their business. They traveled really frequently and they essentially ran the business from their cell phones. It was just such a, you know, exciting concept. I was excited to list the business. And so I roll out the business and get it live and advertised. And I was just blown away by the response, both quantity and quality that I got on the business. So, I, I mean, I probably got 10 times what I would normally get on a similar size brick and mortar listing and much more qualified buyers. And things just moved really quick and had multiple offers, quickly put the business under contract, closed and sold it. And it really got me thinking about how different that experience was compared to the brick and mortar world. I had inquired through Ron actually on a couple of businesses through website closers as a buyer. And I kept seeing the website closers logo coming up on biz buy sell. And as soon as I closed that deal, I reached out to Ron and Jason and asked, Hey, do you need more brokers that understand technology and have some background in tech? And I think we met a couple of days later and in less than five days, I was working for website closers and it had made the migration, but it was just striking, you know, the difference between the brick and mortar world where you might run across town six or eight or 10 times for a meeting to get a listing. And then the same with each buyer compared to the speed and efficiency that we could work with, with an online business and just the demand around that type of business that gave a lifestyle and, and flexibility and scalability, low headcount, and all the things that with technology that a buyer and an investor were looking for. It's just amazing. It is really interesting when you think about, you know, the old days, you think back in the 1970s when the business brokerages all sort of started getting set up. You know, back then you kind of opened up a corner office, you know, you had your coffee maker and your administrative staff and, you know, you kind of ran your office that way. And you probably did some advertising by throwing out some circulars or whatever, you know, through mail. Heck, my guess is that there's still some business brokers out there that do that. But, you know, you're really just at that point focused on the buyers in your area and the sellers in your area. And that can be a very defined area, especially with competition. In our world, it's the entire world. The sellers are all over the world. The buyers are all over the world. And it makes no difference where a company is located for the most part. You know, there are times when we'll get companies that do have a either a brick and mortar element or an element to them that requires them to stay in place, you know, for a period of time. It's a much more virtual world. It will continue to be much more virtual. And it's just interesting to me. We do have quite a few clients that come to us that start out talking to, you know, the guy on the corner that still has the stash and the coffee cup on the corner office. And they talk to them and, you know, they're like, look, you know, you're probably going to get two times for this business. I don't know a whole lot about it, but 
it looks like it's pretty scary because you're selling on the Amazon platform. And then they come to us and we say, look, you know, you're probably at six to eight times. We can have you listed tomorrow. And here's a list of the last couple hundred we've sold. So when you compare the two, it's not really fair to even compare them. But when you do compare the two, it's a whole different world. And a lot of the guys that work for us have seen both worlds. You know, I'm sure all of them will say that this is, this is the place to be. Having a brick and mortar start in the business helped Tom to get a good handle on the basics. Then transitioning to the tech side of the business allowed him to adjust to the change of pace. A lot has changed from when he first started working in mergers and acquisitions. Looking at the industry when you first started out in your career, Tom, what did it look like then compared to kind of what you know it as now? I think there's been wholesale change over the last five years in the industry from my perspective. When I started out, a lot of times the business owners that were coming in, they had started businesses as maybe a side gig or just to generate some extra cash flow in a lot of cases. And and the business had grown and outdone their expectations. And they were really, in a lot of cases, just exploring whether it had value or not and weren't even sure whether they had built a marketable asset. Another big thing that, you know, most of those early businesses were driven more by AdWords or organic SEO traffic. And Amazon was a channel, but not necessarily a primary channel. I think that was really what I saw in the early days. And of course we've gone kind of 180 from both of those, from the expectations of the seller as well as the platform with most e-com businesses now. You know, it's funny when Ron and I started this business way back and just speaking about Amazon businesses now, we just have so many of those that we tend to gravitate towards talking about them. But it's really interesting how that has changed. And I've been selling as a retailer off of Amazon for almost a decade through SEO traffic, PPC affiliates and social but watching how things have changed on Amazon is unbelievable, honestly. I mean, when Ron and I started this business, it was difficult to even sell an Amazon account. I mean, it wasn't really something that anyone even thought possible. You know, they just thought, well, I sell there too. And so you can have that revenue generated from it and let's do a stock transaction because nobody knows how to sell or transfer an Amazon account. And of course, you can't transfer an Amazon account, but you can transfer ownership so that's kind of what it transitioned into. And then after a while, you know, there's so many sellers on the platform that Amazon had to make the change and allow EINs and so forth, tax nexus to be changed so that, you know, people could start transitioning and exiting out of their companies they'd created. And of course, Amazon's made, you know, hundreds of millionaires through the third party seller platform. And I think it's still something like 95% of all of their sales still generate from third party sellers. And there's about 5 million of them out there. And when we started this business, there were not that many out there. You know, you probably had a million, but of those million, Amazon probably represented less than 20% of their sales. Google ran the roost. They were really everything. But of course, Google's algorithms disrupted a lot of companies. When they brought out Panda and Penguin and Hummingbird and the EMD update, EMD especially, it destroyed companies and it was a very high risk profile. So even though for some reason people see Amazon as being a big risk, they're a much more, from a standpoint of a retailer, a much more comfortable place to be because you know what you're going to get with them. You're definitely going to get competition, but you're not going to get a big Google algorithm change is going to completely destroy you and take you out of business like it used to be. And so people started gravitating away from Google. Now most e-commerce people do very, very little with Google ads. Now they're not called AdWords anymore. It's Google ads. And more people do social media and building brands there. They work with influencers on Instagram 
and focus on sponsored ads and so forth with Amazon because Amazon, that's where all of the traffic is. That's where everyone's focused. And unless you've got some kind of a custom or super heavy LTL required product, you're probably only going to focus on Amazon. And I think the search is at about 75% of all search for consumer goods now starts at Amazon rather than Google. And over 50% of all e-commerce sales happen at Amazon now. So talk about change you know, over the last several years. That's crazy. And here we are in the middle of the holiday season and reading in the Wall Street Journal, I think we're up something like 30% over the prior year in online sales. And that's across the board, not just at Walmart, but just across the board in general. So the old days of you know the brick and mortar guys, it's all going away. There's just no need for it anymore. So it is interesting, the changes that we've seen, even in the most recent, and I'll say three years, it's been tremendously different. What about some of the things that might have stayed the same? Something that stays the same and always will is the fundamentals of a business. Proprietary value, clean financials, growth, product differentiation, lack of concentration. All of the fundamentals of business are more of a constant. The platforms change, the way businesses are put together and scaled and grown, a lot of that has changed. But buyers are still investors and they're looking for a rate of return on their investment. So I think the fundamentals stay the same. Good businesses trade and weak businesses have far less value, if any at all. Yeah. And if you just extrapolate on that a little bit and think about the old days, brick and mortar, when you had, let's say you were a buyer and you're looking for a local business and let's say, I don't know, you buy a restaurant. How far can you really go with that restaurant? How much can you really scale? Maybe you can open up a second restaurant, or maybe you can double marketing and get another 20% of patrons in the door, but you can only do so much. You've only got so many tables, so many chairs, and you're probably going to have to actually build other locations, which is expensive and time-consuming. But when you buy an online company or when you buy a tech company, software company, scale can be unlimited. If you're a brand that sells on Amazon, as an example, in one particular category, you can immediately take that same recipe for marketing that you do with that brand and that vertical and go into an adjacent vertical. You can go off of Amazon and start marketing there. You know, a lot of people will take companies that are doing well on Amazon into social media and focus well there. You can go international. Amazon has made it so easy to sell overseas that you simply need to invest in inventory and move it over there. We've got guys that, you know, they've got companies doing $100 million with five people on staff, and they're all over the world selling these products, and you don't need that many more. You know, the old days, maybe it wasn't a restaurant, you know, maybe you ran a business that, you know, maybe provided a service to another company, but yet again, the scale factor for those brick and mortar businesses was so difficult compared to what it is now. I think that's why there's so much demand. I think that's why it's so exciting. You know, there's a lot of stuff that has stayed the same, like Tom mentioned. You know, you're still looking at financials, you're still looking at concentration, you're still the overall risk profile that you put on a company is relatively the same. But the one thing that's definitely different is the scale factor, and that is huge. And that is why there's so much demand and why the multiples are so much higher in these businesses because that opportunity to scale is there. And, and also the opportunity to get a return on investment is quick. If you buy an e-commerce company today and you, as an example, get an SBA loan for it, on average, you're going to get your investment back in that company within six months. On average, not always, but on average. So whatever money you put down to buy that company, you've got back in your pocket within that six-month period. 
that can be done because you're getting a working capital line or because you're not buying inventory during that first period of time because you know that inventory was included in the deal or for other reasons but you know it happens very very quickly whereas if you invest in you know a brick and mortar company or some of the old companies that are out there ROI can take much much longer to achieve and it's also an ever evolving world and i think that right now there's a lot a lot of smart investors out there that realize over the last decade that tech is really leading the way so you know the sector that we're in is tech and i think going forward everyone knows that it's going to have a major major influence on the future it's a broker's job to keep up with these trends and changes in the industry it makes them better at their jobs helping sellers sell and buyers buy it's their job to know this stuff tom what have you found helpful for buyers and sellers to find success in the deal process well, from a buyer perspective, I think it's critical to know what the buyer's looking for before they start shopping. So, you know, what business model are they comfortable with? Do they want to be passionate about their product or are they agnostic? Is it all about the numbers? And what level of liquid investment are they comfortable making? Are they comfortable with leverage? Do they qualify for leverage? You know, how does their background, their personal balance sheet, their credit history align? with the type of businesses they're looking at. You know, it just doesn't make sense to go into the market uneducated and unfocused. So I encourage buyers to define in, in as specific terms as possible exactly what they're looking for so that they'll recognize it when they see it. Because if they don't recognize it, it'll, it'll be gone if it's a good business. It'll move quickly. Additional advice I give to buyers is to, particularly if it's their first venture into uh, tech, is to look closely at the seller and make sure that this is somebody that you can work with, that's committed to your success, that's gonna help you have a seamless transition. I think it can be just as important as looking at the business. If you are an experienced portfolio manager and you already own a dozen Amazon companies, then it doesn't matter much who the seller is and, and what their level of commitment is. For sellers, I typically stress to be transparent. No business is perfect, so just get it out on the table and not to try to persuade or sell their business. That's something that I do a lot of coaching with sellers on. They're salesmen by nature, and they try to sell their business when we get on a, a call with a buyer. And I would say the objective really is to find the perfect match between the buyer and the business. And so what we're really trying to do is make sure we understand what's important to the buyer, and we let that buyer determine whether this particular business is a good fit and then finally, for sellers, I often remind them that we just need one buyer. We don't need to make the business fit to every buyer that we talk to. We want to identify the best, most qualified buyer that's going to have a high level of success with the business. And we want the seller to be committed to that success and support that buyer to the best of their ability to continue to grow and prosper in the business. I think the advice you're giving to buyers is awesome, Tom. And one of the things I have seen from the outside looking into this world is that, and, and I have much less patience than you guys do on the brokerage side. And I think that's really important to this process. But you know, one of the things I have seen are a lot of tire kickers. And if you're a buyer, you know, listening to this podcast, you want to make sure you're not perceived as a tire kicker. Well, first of all, don't be a tire kicker. If you're not serious about buying a business, just continue doing what you're doing <laughs> because this is a very serious thing. You know, you're going to be personally guaranteeing stuff. I mean, your life is on the line. I mean, this is serious. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, it takes a serious commitment. 
And, you know, we just see so many guys out there that are not focused and, you know, kind of looking at everything. I mean, we've got guys that will come and look at 30 or 40 different businesses at a time. You know, as soon as we see that, we just don't bother with them. You know, there's so many buyers out there. Why mess with somebody who's going to look at that many companies? We know they're not serious. You can't be serious if you're looking at that many companies. So I think the advice you're giving is awesome. And hopefully buyers are listening to this and thinking about how they can differentiate themselves from others to look attractive. And my advice is look at one company and build a relationship with your broker because the broker knows all the companies that are coming out. They know this business really well. If they work for website closers, they're good. And in so doing, they can help you tremendously as a buyer, not just with finding the right business, but also getting the lending for it. And if you're a buyer, you know, you might not even realize that you have all kinds of opportunities available to you to acquire this business through leverage. And if you're with a broker, the broker can help you through that process. And the broker doesn't get any fees from you for doing that. You know, the broker gets all of its fees from the seller, but all of our brokers know just how important buyers are to this process, how important lending is to the process. But the one thing they don't want to do is waste time with someone who is wasting their time. Telling a buyer to be focused, I think, is really important. I think anybody listening to this, you need to be focused. I wouldn't just jump on our website and contact the broker you know, for 20, 30 listings, which we see every day. Because as soon as you do that, you're probably not going to get responded to on any of them because no one's going to sign an NDA with you on every single one of those deals. Just look at one explain why you don't like it or why you do like it, build a relationship with the broker, and then the broker will take time. If they see you're serious, they'll take time with you and build a relationship with you because even if the particular business they're representing isn't going to be one that you want to buy, they're aware of probably a hundred others in our group that they can take you to. And that happens all the time. You know, where our brokers will share deals with each other, co-broke with each other. But trust me, they're not going to do that with someone that they don't see as serious and focused. And I guess the last point I would make with respect to the buyers is if you're a buyer, you're not going to be able to put all the money you have in the world down on a business. You have to, you know, have float. It's kind of a common sense perspective. If you've got $500,000 in the world and you go to a bank and say, I want to put $500,000 down, they're going to deny you. Now, if you say, I'm going to put $200,000 down or $250,000 and keep the rest as float so that if something goes wrong, I'll be able to deal with that issue, then that's a different story and that looks attractive to people. So get your financials in order, figure out what size of a company you can buy. As Tom said, get focused and just look at one deal at a time. Focus on that deal. Tell us why you don't like it, which is fine if you don't like it, but tell us why and let's go out there and find you one that you do like. When it comes to a broker, a good broker, and we'll take Tom for example. Tom's had a massive amount of success in our particular world. And when you list a business, you know which ones are the good ones. You know which ones, well, you skip the bad ones. You know which ones are decent, but you also know which ones are the best. And so when you're working with a good broker, you want to stay with that broker because when he gets a good one in and he's working with somebody, he's going to be able to turn to the people that he's got a direct contact on a regular basis with first and say, hey, I want you to take a look at this particular one, which kind of gives that particular buyer an inside on certain listings that are you know, coming into play that are really, really good. And so the object of being loyal to a accomplished, knowledgeable, successful broker is extremely important. And if I didn't mention earlier, don't be a tire kicker. <laughs> 
you know, I would continue on with what Ron was saying, and, I, and I've had a lot of success in this area, just developing broker-buyer relationships. And for a buyer to be taken seriously, when you inquire on a business, give some information about yourself. Offer up who you are, your LinkedIn profile, or what you're targeting, you know, something so that you catch the broker's attention. At least where we're at in the market right now, there is far more demand for businesses than there is supply. And on any given listing, we're going to see 150, 200 or more inquiries. It's impossible for us as brokers to chase each one of those down. And as a broker, over time, you kind of hone your experience to the level that you can sense, even through a brief email, who a serious buyer is. And when I do sense that, 100% of the time, I reach out and I offer to have a consulting call with them and spend 30 minutes or an hour getting to know them and what they're looking for. Now, if they're not interested in doing that, then I know they're not a serious buyer. And if they are, we can get to know each other and it's gonna make so much more sense for a buyer to work with one broker, one professional broker and develop a professional relationship and work towards finding the right business than it is to inquire every time they see something that catches their attention, inquire and work with 10 different brokers. There's no progression in, in that type of approach. But despite that, it, that's the approach that's commonly taken by buyers. They're, every time they see a listing, they, you know, they reach out through the website and they're working with a bunch of different brokers. And there's no, you know, nobody's really getting to understand what it is they're looking for. And to Ron's point, you know, I'm always looking for positive and negative feedback. My general instructions when I send a package out to a new buyer that I've had a consult with is tell me what you love about it, but tell me what you hate about it. And they're both equally effective. So I'll refine what I'm sending you based on the feedback that you're giving me until we find the right fit. Question for you, Tom. What, you know, someone's there's 200 people responding to, you know, a $20 million deal. What is something a buyer can do to get your attention that you know, you're going to think to yourself, this is somebody who's serious and I want to spend some time, my valuable time, to build a relationship with them. At least include a note in a bio at the very least. But the best buyers that I've worked with do a lot more than that. They may send proof of funds. They may send a resume. They'll send a LinkedIn profile. They'll send a list of their target criteria. And when you get an email like that on an inquiry, that's your first phone call that you're going to make. You're going to reach right back out by phone to that buyer that's going to blossom into a business relationship that's going to be productive for both of you. Yeah, I, I agree. Good note on the proof of funds. You know, that's a really important one. And we'll get guys that come in and want to hide that stuff. And I got to be honest with you, like Tom said, there's so many people out there looking for these businesses. We'll just pass right by you. You just don't have the benefit of hiding. You know, if you want to be serious with us anyway, show us proof of funds right away. Don't hide it. You know, send us the information right away. There's no reason for us to sign an NDA. You want to work with us. We're not looking to work with you. So if you want to work with us, you send us the proof of funds. You send us information about yourself. A resume would be great. Give us some actual information about you in the email. Don't just send over some random... I, I've seen things like... I got one just a few minutes ago. A guy came in on a deal and he said... This is all he said. He said, is the seller willing to sell or finance 100% of this? 
that was a $10 million deal. Yeah, every seller in the world is willing to finance their own deal 100%. Just hand the keys off to you and you now own the company and they'll you know, hopefully get paid over time. Obviously, no one's interested in doing that. And that was the only note that person made. That person was immediately put on our blacklist and will never be responded to again. Now, whether or not you know that person was serious or not, yeah, I don't know. But to ask that kind of a question up front shows your unprofessionalism, honestly, your stupidity to the whole process and shows your lack of ability to actually get a deal done. So I like this conversation as we're having it because I think for a buyer, you really got to understand the perspective from our side. And I don't think all buyers get that. You know, they just kind of see things out there. They just kind of click on and say, this is interesting. You have to see it from the inside out. And we're trying to convey that to you now that if you want to be interesting, you have to make yourself look interesting. No different than if you were interviewing for a job, if you're trying to become president of the United States, whatever it is, you got to make yourself stand out because with us, you know, we've got hundreds of people coming in on these deals and we want to work with you if you want to be serious and work with us. I would just add to what you were saying with a ridiculous request of a 100% seller financing. I would say as a buyer, don't lead with an offer of any kind, even if it's a good offer. If you've only seen the marketing and you haven't asked any questions, you haven't seen detailed financials, you really, I mean, you really just have a general idea of what the business is about. Don't make an offer. Ask for an appointment. Ask good questions and learn about the business because your offer is not going to be taken seriously if you've never spoken with the seller or even the broker and you're making an offer. And that happens way more often than you would think. And I would say, on the other hand, asking a few pertinent and pointed questions in your initial response, it could be seen very positive. On the other hand, you know, sending a, a due diligence list with 50 points on it and questions in your first inquiry, that's not going to get you anywhere. It's, you know, it's going to get you ignored. So there's a balance as a buyer you got to be smart. You got to know what you're looking for and include something in your inquiry to let us know that you're a serious buyer and you have questions and you'd like to talk. And that's, you know, the first way to get in the game and, and get moving forward. I often I'll put listings out. I'll get LOIs from people I've never spoken to. And it doesn't even matter if they're full price. It's, it's really hard to take that serious. Nobody buys a business sight unseen. Yeah, just flipping it around, Tom, on the seller side, interested in your thought process as it relates to, you know, obviously we always have a certain percentage of these deals that either die or the first process will die. We'll have to go into a second process because, you know, for whatever reason, the first buyer went away. Just interested in your thoughts at a high level of, of some attributes you see, common attributes you see with sellers and why, you know, those deals fail. Number one is unrealistic expectations. That is a huge obstacle for us as brokers. There is no expectation that's impossible. I think if a seller has a number in mind, then we can backward engineer into that number and we can help them put a strategic plan in place to get to the number that they need. But what we can't do is we can't just hit their number because that's how much money they need to retire. It doesn't work that way. It's That's an emotional response. And there's nothing wrong with the seller, you know, having emotions about selling their business, but we have to use some math as brokers. And that's kind of what we're here for is to bring some rationality. So I would say the number one thing I see is, is just unrealistic expectations. So, Hey, if we're not hitting the number for a seller, then let me help you understand the math that goes into the valuation, which there's really two components, right? There's a multiple of X and X being your discretionary earnings. We can affect both of those. 
we can grow the business and increase X, but we can also increase the multiple by improving the quality of the business. And, you know, there are a lot of businesses that I've coached for a year or even two years before we actually bring them to market. And we put the right pieces in place so that we can hit their number. I think one of the mistakes that some sellers make is they want their number that they've written in the envelope and they want it right now, but they don't necessarily want to understand how to get there. And so those businesses, even, you know, despite hearing that feedback, they list. And it's, you know, it's a harder lesson to learn it in, in a live market because, like you said, the first deal fails because it was overvalued. And then we have to come back and, and start over and hit the reset button. So there's always a path to get to wherever you want. We can be as aggressive as needed. We can go for the quickest timeline or we can go for the maximum valuation. It's just understanding the seller's objectives and then, and then working on a strategic plan to get them to where they want to be and win. Yeah, the only thing I'd add there is what I have found you know, after having done hundreds and hundreds of these is that there's kind of two different failure modes. The one failure mode is common, right? And that is that a company comes to us, they're doing well, they go under the process, and then they can't keep the motor running. You know, it levels out or it fails. <laughs> We've seen all kinds of things happening, but, you know, they'll, they'll take their foot off the pedal, they'll stop ordering inventory, or they'll do other things that aren't just very smart about their business, and we can't do anything for a company that starts dropping during the process. And it's hard for people to hear that, you know, because they got into this process. Their modality is I'm going to sell this business now and I'm going to make a bunch of money and move on. But now we can't do that. We have to take a step back and wait for the company to come back. And, you know, once it's level again or hopefully growing again, you know, then we can look at potentially, you know, going back out to market. Why is that the case? Well, because anybody out there buying a company that sees something dropping, they don't know how far it's going to drop. They don't know if it's ever going to come back. And most of those people have to get funding. And the people that are, you know, underwriting that deal, regardless of the size, somebody's out there, you know, underwriting the transaction and they see that. And now they're terrified that the money that they're giving the buyer is never going to come back to them. You know, because they first and foremost want to protect their principal, but they also want to get paid that interest. So I think that's the one sort of, you know, partition. One thing that I would say is that if you're in that group, make sure that you continue to grow your company throughout the process. And what we tell all of our clients is never take your foot off the pedal and continue growing the company as if it won't sell. Because there's a chance it won't. There's a chance it won't sell the first time. We may have to go to another buyer. And what kind of condition is your company going to be in if you've taken your foot off the pedal and we're going out there to get into the market three months later and now it looks horrible? You know, you've gotten yourself into trouble. And the second sort of partition would be what you're talking about, Tom, and that is these guys that are just not reasonable. Everybody we deal with is an A-type, and that's fine. That's what made them successful, and we love that. We love dealing with entrepreneurs. That's never a problem at all. But the unreasonable ones are the ones that won't listen to you. These are the ones that come in and they tell you how the world works. They tell you how the company is going to sell. They tell you what the valuation is. And they tell you what they're going to do. And if that doesn't happen, the deal isn't going to happen. And almost every time you get someone that does that, the company won't sell. That's just the case. I mean, maybe we mess around for a while and we try to sell, we get people interested or whatever, but it's just, you know, if you're a buyer, this is kind of like a partnership, almost like a marriage. And if, you know, you hear somebody telling you how things are going to be, you probably are going to go to the next deal. You're not going to want to deal with that particular person because that's going to be a nightmare of a partnership, of a marriage, and there's going to be a divorce, potentially a lawsuit. 
So, you know, the one piece of advice I would give sellers besides keep your business running well is be reasonable. You know, we're in this business, you know, and for the most part, we are a tiered approach brokerage, which means that the more money we get for you, the higher our commission rate. So we want to sell your business for the highest number. We're aligned at the hip with you there. We're not trying to get you to come in and and bring a a small number. In fact, we do the opposite. We want to push it to the very highest number. We're going to always push our clients to achieve the highest enterprise value. So if we're doing that, what we ask you to do is to be reasonable in the process. That means as it relates to transition, as an example, you have to be available for transition. This is a tech company. This is not a restaurant. This is not something that can be trained in 10 days and then you leave. If you're an Amazon seller, as an example, you've got a complete system on product launches, finding products, keeping products live, dealing with one-star reviews when they come about, dealing with ASINs going down when they come up. I mean, these are things that these buyers have never experienced before. And they're going to need your help throughout the process. And to the extent you come in and you say, I'm going to be there for you, don't you worry. I'm not just turning over the keys. I want to continue to be involved either as an owner or, you know, as a part owner or, you know, as a consultant or just as part of the transition to be there. That's the kind of seller that's going to meet with the most success, not somebody that comes in and dictates how these things are going to go. And trust me, we have plenty of those deals. And those are the ones that stay on the market that don't close. And you can just look at our website and see the ones that have been out there for a little while. Most of those are those particular sellers. They're just not reasonable to the process and buyers, you know, they're not going to have it. That's the advice that I would give. Thanks to Tom Howard, Jason, and Ron for taking the time to talk to me. Feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers.